Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome to another amazing Saturday session. We have a full house tonight, which is really cool when we have a lot of people here. It's a really nice energy. Um, so I wanted to first, of course, highlight yesterday's amazing khutbah and share. The, the title of it is Lessons from God the Teacher and Muhammad the Student. Um, and we are really fortunate um, here afterwards, you know, we get a little bit of conversation, we get a little bit of insight, kind of like behind the scenes conversation. So I thought I would share one of the things that was really powerful um, is the idea from yesterday's khutbah that, you know, we um, in listening to the Quran get, you know, a window into the lessons that God as the teacher is teaching Muhammad the student. And for us as Muslims, it's important for us to, you know, understand the importance of that relationship, the, the teacher-student relationship, but also learn from that and recognize the importance of good teachers and good students. Because if you don't have good teachers, um, that obviously affects the students. And if you don't have good students, then that obviously affects the teacher. Um, and sadly, you know, in our in our time, we have problems with both. Um, and so it's a really um, yesterday's khutbah was a really powerful discussion of that. Um, but, you know, again, just, you know, I, I just wanted to emphasize that point that, you know, which afterwards when the sheikh was sharing it with us, it was so beautiful that the idea of Allah the teacher and Muhammad the student, and we're witnessing it and, and learning from it. And it's like, it, you know, it, we're learning what Allah is teaching his student or God's student to teach others, and that's what we should be teaching. So, you know, and when we talk about justice and mercy and beauty and a lot of these really big values, um, you know, it's it's so important to, to remember that framework. Um, I also wanted to share some interesting statistics um, because tonight we're starting on our 79th surah, which is incredible Was when you think about that. That is a really huge number. And I've been saying that all along. It's like, wow, I can't believe this is our 60th surah, our 70th surah. Now we're actually just about to the door of our 80th surah. But that is in the Project Illumin um, approach. Um, when I go back and look at the numbers of everything we've covered since, you know, we started and since Sheikh actually even gave um, Halakha's beginning back in the 90s, um, we have covered between, um, so Project Illumin, we've done 78, so tonight will be the 79th. Um, we have not covered at all um, nine suras. So that means there are 36, if you count like the ones that we did before Asuli, um, that's another uh, 36, and so if you know, if you just say, what have we not covered at all, either in Project Illumin or before Asuli, that's only nine suras, which is crazy. So we are really on the doorstep. We are in single digits to finishing the entire Quran, um, and you know, even though the Sheikh did line by line um, approaches, which is extremely valuable and also quite different than most tafsirs, um, he managed to sneak in, um, you know, Khaled Abulfadl's approach. And so you might not, like now, as we're seasoned from hearing how he approaches the Quran, I think we would, if we go back and listen to the line-by-line -line versions, we would recognize it. But, you know, so even to say that it was a line-by-line -line approach um, means it's still Khaled Abulfadl's approach to it, and it's extremely powerful. If you go back and listen to some of the really early texts here, they're, they're pretty amazing. Um, so that's in, that's that's incredible, and um, but I'm excited that we still have 36 more left on the Project Illumin journey, and inshallah, um, you know, may Allah help us and empower us to finish this, um, and then ultimately, you know, turn all of that into this multi-volume work that we've been shooting to do. That Joe has been working hard with his team on um, working to transcribe, and um, you know, it's you don't recognize there are things that happen in your day that I think underscore 
the lessons that we've been learning here. And one of the things that, um, you know, we're so busy, unfortunately, I always wish there was more time to do the things that, you know, I, I would like to do. But one of the things that I started listening to today was this podcast that came out between Jordan Peterson and Hamza Youssef. It's been kind of making the rounds on social media. And, um, you know, it's this discussion called what we can all learn from the Quran um, and Islam. And, you know, we, we give Hamza Yusuf a pretty hard time around here. Um, we, you know, give him a lot of grief because he doesn't, you know, the, the critique is really that, you know, here in, as an ethical Muslim, it's not just about ritual, it's not just about prayer, it's not just about, you know, um, focusing on yourself, but it's actually what you can do in an active state um, to affect what's happening in the world. And speaking out, especially when you have a, a position and a platform and you have a lot of people that follow you, you know, that's an important, um, and as, as a, you know, as a scholar, when you call yourself a scholar, you should stand up for truth and justice. And when you don't, and when you're silent, that from our perspective, that is a huge, huge, you know, red flag and, and a huge failure, quite frankly. Um, so, you know, and I, um, you know, as a convert, I remember when I was an early convert, and I, I remember hearing all the buzz about Hamza Yusuf, you know, because at that point, he was also a convert, and he was making the scenes, and he was, he's probably about, 10 years older than me. Um, and he was, you know, in his state where he was doing a lot of rounds at the Islamic Center circles and whatever and giving these talks. And I remember having just a hard time like following what he was saying. Um, and that's my own thing. I w never quite understood like why people were so like abuzz about him. I mean, and, and so I just was like, okay, you know, I'm going to reserve judgment and just kind of try to continue learning and try to understand. And I felt like today, I mean, I know that this podcast has been making the rounds and I thought, okay, well, we give him so much grief. I actually would like to listen to what, you know, what he has to say, especially since he's talking about the Quran and he's talking about Islam. Um, and he obviously is now going to be speaking to a large audience because Jordan Peterson has a very huge audience and um, as does Hamza Yusuf. And I think, I mean, it's an interesting story. Um, I wish I had more time. I, you know, in full disclosure, I listened to just about an hour of an hour and a half talk. Um, and then I kind of skipped to the last part where Jordan Peterson asked him to summarize what are the core values of Islam. Um, and I, you know, as I was listening to it, I was like, oh my God, okay, that's a really good question. I would know exactly how I would want to answer that, you know, in a very direct way. And I felt like there were so many situations where he was asked a very direct question and he sort of like if, if he had been a student of Project Illumin, it would have been a lot more like, okay, like for example, you know, I think Jordan Peterson was looking for an understanding of how do we bring, what's the connection between, you know, Muslims and the rest of the world? Um, what's the connection between the Abrahamic faiths? And we've talked about that so much here. At, you know, it's like it's now part of just our regular assumption. We understand that, you know, there's a connection between Islam. This is the same message. It's the same prophets. It goes, you know, everything that we're talking about and learning about connects us back to the original um, message of, you know, Abraham. And we can go through and very, you know, in a very detailed way, articulate how that is. And I felt like when, you know, even Hamza Yusuf was asked a very direct question, like, what's the difference between your team and any other team? What's the difference between your team and, you know, Muslims and, and Christians and Jews? Um, and he was given the opportunity to just really make it very clear and very straightforward. He didn't. Um, or what's the significance of Jesus? He didn't. What's the significance of Trinity? He didn't. You know, there were so many things that, you know, I felt like, oh my God, alhamdulillah, like I, now that I've been through this education, 
it would be easy for me to answer that question in a much more direct way. And it also highlighted to me, sadly, I felt like, you know, I feel like he doesn't have a good grasp of a clear-cut answer um, that, you know, it, it became clear to me. It's like when you understand something and you're watching someone who just doesn't understand it as well, it just became clear. You know what? Sadly, this person doesn't have as deep of a connection with the Quran as I would hope he would. He didn't talk about, and let me give you some more examples, um, because, you know, and I don't mean this as to just let, you know, let me just poo-poo Hamza Yusuf. He obviously had a really interesting story. He was asked about his, you know, conversion. Apparently he was in a car crash when he was 17. He should have died. And that's what sort of triggered his interest in, like, finding faith. He grew up, I guess, in a, um, from a family that was very eclectic um, and had a lot of history back in, like, you know, Catholicism um, and grew up, like, in the Greek church and, you know, went to, like, Greek um, Catholic camp or Greek church camp or something like that. Um, and so he was very concerned about the idea of, oh, my God, if I had died and he had had, like, a, you know, a um, near-death experience where, you know, he just saw his life flash before his eyes, you know, he asked himself, well, what would have happened to me if I had actually died, you know, and um, that's kind of what made him then go and study every religion to find out, well, what, ha what is the answer for what happens after you die? And, um, and it was interesting because Jordan Peterson asked him, well, um, you know, okay, this is, it was interesting that it triggered you. Um, what was it about it that, that really made you, you know, feel like you had to think about what you had to do to prepare for death? Because his comment was, I wanted to know what would happen to me and what should I do to prepare for death? And so Jordan Peterson will, said, well, why, why do you feel like you actually need to prepare for death? And it sort of stumped him. He was like, well, I, I, actually, I think it's common sense. So you get a sense of like Jordan Peterson was trying to figure out sort of bigger questions, you know, and he asked very intelligent questions and very, you know, um, good questions for someone who is seeking and who has, you know, I think um, a good engagement with the issues of our day and how to address those things. Um, and, but I think what struck me about a lot of the answers that he gave were, you know, one through that filter of what happens to me when I die. And then his, the way he explained Islam was very much through that filter of like almost rituals and preparation for death. And, you know, everything we do is ritualistic in a sense. And even like the way he described the Quran, one of the things he said that sort of struck me is if you open the, the Quran, every single page has the scent of death because it talks about death. And I thought, oh my God, why, I, how would I ever describe the Quran as every page has the scent of death? Um, and that, so he asked him, okay, so when you prepare for death, how do you, um, how should you prepare for death? And he said, um, you should be in a good state. Okay, well, what does that mean you should be in a good state? Well, that, you know, you should have, um, you know, repented, you should have been, you know, like doing a lot of the, the rituals where like, you know, even when you wake up in the morning, you know, Muslims start by reciting, you know, this prayer, thanking God um, for, you know, raising me from the small death because sleep is the small death and then from there I go and I wash and I pray and then I think about you know this ritual and that ritual and it was very much like let me take you through sort of the rituals of what we do and there was not very much actually even related to back to the Quran or even to a relationship with God um, and then even at one point like he asked him about um, the Quran's view of like you know your purpose and he made this comment like um, the Quran is very, or Islam is very antagonistic towards socialism and groups and started citing hadiths about how we should not be 
part of a group because there's group think and all of this stuff. So, I mean, there were a lot of moments where I like heard what he said and I'm like, literally my jaw dropped and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe you just said that. And that's so not true. Um, but, you know, this is one of these things where I wish I had time. I, I would have given, hopefully, you know, I wish I could have had time to go through and given more of a critique or more of a whatever. You know, I mean, the good thing about this is that the audience I assume that he's listening to is, you know, someone who, you know, people who are not obviously very familiar with Islam um, and, you know, wouldn't notice things like that. Um, but at the same time, you know, from my perspective, it's like, man, this is a missed opportunity. You know, you had a chance to tell people this is a really beautiful religion. It's an intuitive religion. If you want to know what Islam has to say, because he was asked, you know, well, tell me about Islam. You know, what does it have to say? How can people relate to it? You know, I mean, it was like he was obviously Jordan Peterson was coming at it from, you know, an Islamophobic but open perspective. It's like, OK, help me understand. And I would have started from notions of love and intuition and humanity and the things, you know, because Jordan obviously was looking for a way to connect people. And, you know, how do we move forward? How do we build? How do we work in our society where people are having problems with, you know, um, ego and, you know, I mean, all the things we talk about here. And it's like, instead of actually even referencing the Quran, he would often go to outside sources. Oh, well, there's a really interesting book by so-and-so. There's a really interesting book by so-and-so, which had absolutely, you know, it was like so tangential. Here you learn like everything you need to know about our purpose, our calling, our connection to God, you know, like what, how to prepare for death. How do you understand your role? You know, like when you say, how do I connect all the different people in different religions, you can start by saying, well, you know what, we're all connected by God telling us that we're all equal and that, you know, we are, are judged by, you know, the good that we produce and that everyone, even like when they were talking about, well, why is it that some people have so much privilege? Like uh, Jordan Peterson was saying, well, it seems that, you know, some people, there's this randomness about who gets privilege. And then if you get privilege and you get wealth, then you have to sort of atone for it by doing things that, you know, are, are good for, for society or whatever. And it's like, okay, here's the open, you know, opening to say, well, listen, you know, God, all wealth comes from God. You know, you might be someone with great privilege. You might be someone with no privilege. But, you know, if you're someone with great privilege, your point is to empower the disempowered and to do good and to serve. And, you know, and everyone has a very unique test. And, you know, the point is to, you know, do something. And it's, and it's like you have a connection to your greater world. I mean, there were just so many ways that he could have shown this is a universal humanistic message. And yet he remained in this ideal of this is our team. Islam has this, you know, and even at the end, Jordan was like saying, well, you know, what if I wanted to, I'm trying to figure out how to connect the, you know, the Jewish message and the Christian message and the Islamic message, you know, what, if like, how, how would I think of, you know, if I like the things that the Islam, you know, has to say, then he's like, oh, well, then you should be Muslim because then you can have all three. We have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, and we have, you know, our faith. And in our faith, we have this and we have that. And we have, you know, and, and we have this, um, we have ghusl. And so we clean, we have ghusl once a week. And, you know, in Christianity, you have this other thing. You know, I mean, and it became like a, oh, let me compare with you all the things that our team has versus your team. So maybe we can come together on the things that are very similar and then, you know, that's that's how we can you know and and it's funny if you actually go to the very end of the talk it's this is where he he finishes that and he says um, yeah you know um, we can start with that you know on 
the common ground of what we do share, you know, as if your team and my team are okay, you know, we, we can live side by side. And then Jordan Peterson kind of goes, okay, well, um, I think that's a good place to end it. I think we're out of time. And you walk away feeling like, oh, lost opportunity. Oh my God, you had the opportunity to share with, if you had this knowledge, right? If you knew and you could very easily pull out of your back pocket, this is why we are one people. There's one message. There's one God. You know, this is why Jesus is significant. This is why it's significant that we are connected from Mecca to Jerusalem. That we, you know, I mean, there are just so many different things we could have said from, from that I've learned from, you know, this, this educational experience. And not the least of which is, you know, someone like Hamza Yusuf, 10 years my senior, you know, and recognized as one of the best scholars that we have. You know, when you recognize so clearly that, oh my God, I know much more about the Quran than you do, it's obvious, it's obvious. You know, and this is not a point of arrogance, it's just a point of, okay, you, you could have answered that question 10 different ways. And the way you chose to answer it was actually deflective. You know, it's like when someone asks you a question and because you don't know the answer, you kind of try to go all the way around it and try to like introduce other things and then you never actually answer the question. That was what the whole hour and a half struck me as. And I invite you, I mean, I, you know, I invite you to watch it because it's important. I mean, I think it's important for us to know what our scholars are saying. It's important even to know, like, okay, you know, Jordan asked very good questions and even like ask yourself, how would I answer this question? And how, you know, because for us as ambassadors of this faith and ambassadors now of the Quran through this process, we should have the ability to answer very basic questions about what is Islam? What is the Quran? What is the message? What pulls us all together? Why are we different? Why are we not just another team? Why is God important? You know, and where was God? Like God was really, really tangential in this discussion. And even the Quran was really, really tangential in the discussion. You know, when he was asked, okay, can you sum up um, you know, Islam in five minutes, the first thing he referred to was a hadith. And I thought to myself, why are you referring to a hadith? And then you kind of work your way around. So it just underscores to me again, just, you know, how clearly we, if someone like Hamza Yusuf, you know, and all the people that he influences, you know, are, are so impressed by this. And I have to say, like, literally, you know, 800,000 people have watched this video and I've seen tons of comments by Muslims. This was like the greatest thing they'd ever watched. Uh, you know, it was really actually disturbing for me and, and really sad and, and sobering. And it's like we have so much to learn as Muslims if that is what people think is like the best we have. So um, forgive me for going off, but I just, again, you know, this is an educational process. And I think it's important for us to engage everything to know what our situation is, you know, what are people learning from the different sources that we consider scholars, and what can we do, right? Like any one of us now can actually go and take that video and critique it. Like I would love to have someone go and pull out the questions that Jordan asked and present the answers that we would answer. And I think that would be very useful and very valuable because a lot of times people just don't even know that these better answers exist. And maybe that would prompt someone to be more interested in, you know, like learning the Quran and learning you know, what we're doing here. So, um, you know, take that for what it's worth. Again, I would be happy if, if people are interested in watching and having a discussion about it, I would be happy to do that. You know, none of this is intended. It's not an ad hominem attack. It's just an attack on we could do so much better and we have so much better now so so we really you know it's it's in our 
our hands to make a difference this way in helping to educate others. Um, so anyway, I'm so excited for tonight's surah. Um, I know that Sheikh, when he let us know that it was Surah Al-Hashr, he be, it was look, like he got you know a thousand pound weight dropped on him, and all night he's been like <laughs> struggling and w with the weight of it. Like you can just see it. Like he gets a look on his face, and so I'm like, oh my god, I feel so bad. So I know that today, inshallah, will be an amazing surah. So inshallah, thank you for joining us and. Um, yeah, looking forward to an incredible session, inshallah. No pressure, of course. <laughs> Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad. Al-Nabiyy al-Ameen. Khatamu al-Rusli wal-Anbiya'i ajma'in. Al-Mursal rahmatan lil-Alameen. وعلى آله الميامين وعلى أصحابه المختارين وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا علي عظيم إن شاء الله Tonight is Surat Al-Hash, and as by now, <coughs> those who follow us know that Grace and I never coordinate anything. Um, I haven't listened to the talk that Grace is uh, uh, that Grace uh, mentioned, and I and I don't plan to listen to it. Um, but. If what Grace said is true, um, my only comment is that we get the teachers we deserve. And um, we get the teachers we deserve. We get the teachers we deserve. Um, SubhanAllah, I mean, it, it, it's, it, I'm, I'm a little bit overwhelmed because for, there's just the, 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 Greece often says there, there are no coincidences. SubhanAllah, I mean, the, the, maybe the, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I don't want to say the divine plan. I mean, I'll say the happenstance that she decided to talk about this in, when we are going to discuss Surat Al-Hashr, um, and you'll understand why, uh, once we, talk about Surat Al-Hash because SubhanAllah Surat Al-Hash um, is, uh, is precisely about this it's precisely about the nature of what type of people you are and what you deserve and how Allah engagement with us is remarkably logical. Um, Allah extends to us 
what we will. Surah Al-Hash, as we'll unpack inshallah, tells us that if you look at your affairs and you see that Allah, that what Surah Al-Hash is describing is not taking place, in other words, things are not working out in your world the way that the logic of being aided by Allah, with Allah by your side, at your side, if you find that you embrace Islam, but the 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 unfoldings what is taking place in the world around you is not consistent with Allah being at your side aiding you supporting you then look within subhanallah i mean it's the very simple point, but remarkably overwhelming point, that if you look at your affairs as Muslims around the globe, and you see that you're at a mess, you are in a mess, then there is one thing and one thing only to do and that is to look within. What type of fate do you deserve? What type of fate do you deserve? SubhanAllah, Surah Al-Hash comes at a time and we'll, inshallah, we'll unpack all of this. Taking a set of very specific historical events, and you think that the surah is basically going to engage these historical events in some type of whatever religious logic one might anticipate. But what actually Surat al-Hash does is that it takes the historical events as a launching point for a core existential message. Okay, so let's start out systematically as we always do you know subhanallah just as long as as long as this 
this this this type of thorough exhaustive understanding of the Quran remains the minority remains the marginality in Islamic life and as long as Muslims are engaged are addicted to hubris and affectations and theater the theater of religiosity Allah is not going to be on our side Allah is not on our side Allah is not with us and will not be with us and if we would have understood the Quran understood what Allah was telling his prophet because if Allah tells his prophet Allah tells his prophet that unless you abide by ABC I will not be with you how about us no amount of ritual no amount of affectations is going to help us okay so surah al-hash all indications are that it is revealed around the fourth century hijra i'm sorry fourth year his after the hijra the fourth year in medina and that it is revealed after the battle of badr and after the battle of uhud In terms of order of revelation, it is probably the hundredth surah or the hundredth and first surah, hundred and one, hundred, hundred, hundred and one, hundred and two, something like that. Um, the surah revealed right before Surah An-Nur. Um, and Although, here's where we, we start getting into conflicting reports. Many reports will tell us that Surah Al-Hash was revealed um, substantially before Surah Al-Saf or Al-Jumah. That, in fact, between Surah Al-Hash and Surah Al-Saf and Surah Al-Jumah, which we've discussed, you have the Surah Al-Nur, Al-Hajj, Al-Munafiqun, Al-Mujadala, Al-Hujurat, Al-Tahreem, Al-Taghabun were all revealed. I think that that's extremely unlikely. I think that Surah Al-Hajj was revealed shortly, shortly before Surah Al-Saf and Surah Al-Jumah. In other words, that Al-Saf and Al-Jumah were revealed before, definitely before Al-Khujurat or Al-Tahreem, which we haven't, well, we've talked about Al-Khujurat, um, definitely before Al-Khujurat and before Al-Tahreem and before Al-Taghabun, but that you have that cluster where you have Al-Hash, Al-Saf, Al-Jum'ah revealed in very close proximity to one another. And probably, probably Al-Hash was revealed before shortly before Al-Saf al 
not after. And what helps us place Surah Al-Hash is the fact that it, it addresses a set of historical events. The overwhelming majority of reports say that the historical events that it addresses have to do with the conflict with the Jewish tribe of Banu Nadir in Medina. There are reports, conflicting reports, that say that no, Surat al-Hash was addressing the conflict with the Jewish tribe of Banu Quraiza. But the conflict with the Jewish tribe of Banu Quraiza takes place later. And it's not consistent with the idea that this is a revelation in the fourth year of Hijra. And it is extremely unlikely that Surat al-Hash was revealed uh, around the time of the conflict with Banu Quraiza. I think the overwhelming, or that, that's an exaggeration, the preponderance of the evidence, the clear balance of the evidence, in my opinion, is that it is addressing the conflict with Banu Nadir and not Banu Quraiza, as related by Tabari and others. Well, Tabari relates the reports about the, it being revealed at the time of Banu Quraiza. And as you will see, there is a significance to this and an importance to this for a number of reasons. But the structure of Surat al-Hash is remarkably interesting. It is, so the Surah begins, it's one of the Surah of al-Musabbihat, right? So it begins with the, the, the tanzih that we've talked about. That when a surah begins with tasbih, excuse me, when it begins with tasbih, it means it begins with tanzih. And tanzih is reminding the audience that Allah is like no other. And that Allah is singular. And that Allah is supreme. But like that class of surah generally, that class of surah that begins with one form of tasbih or another, whether present tense, past tense, and so on, It reminds us that in the entire existence, the entire existence is intimately interconnected with its creator. That everything in, in existence engages in tasbih. Now, 
when we human beings do tasbih, we call this supplication. Why do we call it supplication? Because we have an instrumentality that makes the act of tasbih, which we call supplication, a product of an exercise of our willpower. And that instrumentality is called the aql, the intellect. We, we use the intellect, we exercise the intellect to engage in an affirmative act of will. We will it to be so, and what we will is to acknowledge the singularity of our Lord and in fact acknowledge, or that's what we're supposed to be acknowledging, not just the singularity of our Lord, but our utter dependence and the dependence of existence upon our Lord. That we are thoroughly connected, that without putting, you, you know, the, the idea of that without an intricate balance, scientific balance of things, what would result is utter chaos. Well, what you are doing when you engage in act of tasbih, you are saying, Lord, that order of things depends on you. You are the secret formula that holds things intact. You are the secret formula that allows a tree to be a tree, that allows a mountain to be a mountain, to allows a river to be a river, that allows earth to be earth, sun to be sun. Without you, there would be an utter chaos. There would be existence as we know it, wouldn't it be? But for you as a human being, that is a product of an exercise of willpower, of an exercise of an akli act, of an intellectual act, act of rationality. But because whatever Allah has allowed to be a product of an akli act, whatever Allah has allowed to exist as a product of an exercise of will, and rational powers, Allah has also allowed for it to be the negation of. So in the same way that you can engage in tasbih, recognizing the singularity of your creator and the utter dependence on your creator, you can also exercise your intellect to do the exact opposite of. Now, Creation, however, creation, the logic of creation, repeatedly, all around us, is that it does not depend on an exercise of willpower and ugly acts. That, in fact, the reason that creation supplicates the Lord 
is because it is encoded in its nature. And that is precisely why we cannot understand, as Allah tells us, you cannot understand their tasbih. Because what you understand is in the realm of the aql. What is comprehensible to you, human beings, is whatever is a product of rational processes. Whatever is a product of involuntarism, in other words, it is because it is, to you, it is not part of the way that you structure your world and you comprehend your world. So it is very important that, again, Surah Al-Hash begins by saying to us, all of creation acknowledges the Lord, praises the Lord, is in constant remembrance of the Lord. You have a choice, but creation is in its natural state. Now, when you understand that, it penetrates to your heart that if you take Allah out of the equation, everything would collapse, would fall, would just fold like a deck of cards. What is that a particle that they call in science uh, the uh, Higgins or Higgs? Higgs. Oh, Higgs, Higgs. something, right? What Allah, I mean, and that is why all the all the, the the Sufi tradition in Islam. I mean, when you, you just read treaties after treaties after treaties, and the insights of Sufi masters is mirrors this this dynamic that I just described to different levels of intensities and different. with different points of emphasis and so on. Okay. But from that beginning, Surah Al-Hash then launches into talking about a historical dispute, a very, what can I say, Um, a very historically contingent set of events. But after addressing these events, it comes back at the end and it ends with one of the most powerful and one, not just most powerful, but most overwhelming expressions of of Allah's singularity. So it takes you into a set of historical events, pulls you in, gets you, discusses these historical events, in fact engages you 
challenges you to understand what these historical events were and what Allah is saying about these historical events. But then comes at the very end when you think, okay, well, we've discussed the historical events, now let's go home. Instead, it gives you the most profound and one of the most singular expressions in the Quran of the nature of divinity itself. And as we learned, as Subhaniyat, the oldest surah that begins with tasbih, always challenge human beings to do or not do something. So we already know from our methodology that Surah Al-Hash is challenging us. What is the challenge? We already know that it presents us with a challenge. What is that challenge? Okay, now that we laid out the general structure of the surah, let's talk about the historical events. So, there is, there is a component in which there is substantial consensus. And there are some aspects in which there are disagreement, but we'll, we'll go through it. Okay. So, the Prophet ﷺ engages in an agreement set out in Wathiqat al-Madina with particularly, there, there is the, 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 the sort of um, sections of, of society. There are the Muhajirun, the, the migrants. There are the native Medinians who are converted. There are the Medinians who did not convert. And they're not Jewish, they're not Christian, but they did not adopt Islam. And then there are the Jewish tribes. And there is a, a negotiated agreement with the Jewish tribes. The most important part of this agreement is, of course, what is necessary for the security of this Muslim city-state. That the Jewish tribes while they will not fight in the ranks of Muslims, in other words, they're not obligated to help Muslims in wars against their enemies. And what Muslims are particularly worried about is Quraysh. And as we said before, that if Quraysh manages to ally itself with the Jewish tribes, this could be the fatal blow to Muslims in Medina. And the Jewish tribes negotiate this agreement and it's 
memorialized in writing in what is known as Wasiqat al-Madina. Banu al-Nadir, led by a very, um, I don't know, um, how to, a very slimy, slithery type fellow called Kaab ibn al-Ashraf. Um, he's one of the types that would engage in a lot of double talk and, and, and so on anyway. So after the Battle of Badr, Banu al-Nadir, Kaab ibn al-Ashraf, aided by a certain people, by a number of people, go out of their way to assure the Prophet ﷺ that not only are they obligated under the terms of Wathiqat al-Madina, the constitution of Medina, but that in fact they have now adopted amicable, friendly relations. That, in fact, there are these narratives that Kabul al-Ashraf even says to, to, the, the, to the Prophet ﷺ that, you know, we, we're going to limit our trade with Quraysh, which the Prophet didn't require them to do. Um, we, we want such good relations with Muslims that we are going to reorient a lot of our policies because we recognize you as our natural allies. And there are many reports that say that Kaab ibn al-Ashraf and the elders of Banu Nadir went even further than that and told Muslims that we officially recognize uh, the Torah talks about an awaited prophet so for instance in Deuteronomy eighteen 15 says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet from among your own people, like myself, him you shall heed. This is just what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb, etc., etc., and at assembly saying, so on and so forth. Um, Um, I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all that I command. If, if anybody fails to heed the words he speaks in my name, I, I myself will call him to account. But any prophet who presumes to speak in my name at an oracle, then it gets it talks about oracles and so on. So in other words, that in Deuteronomy, it talks about that the Lord will raise a prophet And that this prophet will speak the words of the Lord. 
And that Banu Nadir, Kaab ibn al-Ashraf, tells Muslims, we officially recognize Muhammad as the prophet being talked about in Deuteronomy. This, of course, this announcement is something that Muslims were very happy about. And they thought that, well, this is quite wonderful because um, when you imagine that you are under the stress of a very young state with all the unknowables and the precarious situation you're in, and you initially think that your natural allies are going to be the people of the book. That was the initial attitude of Muslims, that it is going to be the people of the book who they will not have to fight, that their fight is with the polytheists, not the people of the book. And this seemed to be going in that direction. Things, however, changed drastically after the Battle of Uhud. After the Battle of Uhud, as you know, Abdullah ibn Ubay withdraws with one-third of the army before the battle. The battle doesn't go well for Muslims. And as we already, we've already talked about, there is a lot of talk about how this, this whole thing is going to fail. That, look, Muslims got defeated. They had major dissension within their army. The Quran itself talks about the existence of many hypocrites among Muslims and those who ran away in battle, etc., etc. So, Banu Nadir this is the, where the problems emerge with Muslims. Banu Nadir first revoked the declaration about Muhammad being the awaited prophet. And they say, no, the awaited prophet is supposed to be an Ezraite and not a descendant of Ismail. Although, as we saw in the previous halakha, that again the Bible talks about the descendants of Ibrahim Ismail lines having a prophet among them. But anyway, Banu Nadi says our declaration that this is the prophet that Deuteronomy is talking about. Um, is not true, that this is not the awaited prophet. But more importantly, Quraysh, after the Battle of Uhud, is very keen on reaching out to Jewish tribes and enlisting them in their conflict with Muslims. And when Quraysh, and, and the, 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 uh, the reports are in conflict as to whether the 
the Banu Nadir initiated the, the contact or Quraysh initiated the contact, but it doesn't matter. Anyway, either way, Kaab ibn al-Ashraf visits Quraysh in secret and assures them that they are on their side in the conflict with Muslims and that they do not consider themselves bound by Wathiqat al-Madina, by the, the Constitution, or by, and so it, it looks like a, a major um, it, it looks like a, a, what do we put it? Uh, a, an utter collapse within the general structure of what Medina as a polity looks like to outsiders. You know, it, this is precisely what would happen if, if outsiders start thinking you're weak, you're crumbling, they can come after you. This type of breakup within the ranks of uh, what the Muslims had arranged when they migrated. Um, so it is clear that Banu Nadir has broken their alliances with Muslims and have allied themselves now with Quraysh. And that what Muslims are extremely worried about that if that if this alliance turns into a military force, then they will be invading Medina from in from positions that are not defensible. The, Banu Nadir are there. The that the their settlement is about two miles from the heart of Medina to the south of Medina, and it is the back door to the Medina, and it is flat plain lands, not mountainous areas. So it leaves the flanks of Muslims completely exposed. There is a report that, well, at the same time, at this, in the midst of all of this, so you understand when I talk about the, 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 the political effect of defeat and people breaking their alliances with you, this is also what emboldened a tribe known as Arina to trick and murder 70 companions of the Prophet the tribe of Arina goes to the um, uh, goes to the Prophet and say, "We are very interested in Islam. Send with us people who would teach us Islam." He sends these companions. I mean, um, um, 
summarizing a longer story, but anyway, he sends companions, uh, about 70 of them, and it turns out to be a, a trick, or they, they murder all 70. And they are emboldened to do that because the, the word is around that it's all falling apart for Muslims. And there is a single survivor in the massacre of Arina. And there are reports that that single survivor escapes from the massacre, but ends up killing two men that he thought were part of the enemies coming after him. But they turn out to be members of another tribe, not related to Arina. So it's mistaken identity. And that tribe is supposed to have had a long-standing agreement with Banu Nadir, the Jewish tribe. And there are reports that um, that the Prophet ﷺ goes to Bani Nadir to say, help me, according to the agreement of Watiqat al-Madina, in this type of situation, to just summarize a more complicated story, Bani Nadir would help Muslims pay off the blood money to the tribe um, that lost two members. And according to these reports that when the Prophet ﷺ go to, goes to Banu Nadir and say, help me pay off the blood money, the compensation for the wrongful killing of these two people, they try to assassinate him. But he escapes from the assassination attempt. I have very serious doubts about this whole assa attempted assassination story. It, it's a it's a longer but that he sits to have a meal and then there's the ben the the, the Kaab, um, um, Kaab ibn al-Ashraf sends someone to the plan is to drop a rock on the prophet's head as he's eating uh, the prophet receives a revelation about this assassination attempt so he leaves Banu and and he doesn't tell his companions as he's leaving. He goes back to Medina, and then his companions are looking for him. And then they they find out that he had already gone back to Medina. The the way this this the 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 transmissions of this purported assassination attempt are problematic, and the the narrative itself has elements of theater that make me very suspicious of its authenticity um you know even something like why would the prophet leave and not tell his companions that he's leaving and why would the, he goes back he goes back to medina and then they're looking for him everywhere and then they ask 
some traveler on the road and he says, oh yeah, I've seen him going back to Medina. They go back to Medina and they say, why did you leave? And he says, oh, well, you know, because I learned that they were going to plan to assassinate me. It, 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 and especially when the only, the, out of Ben Nadir, there were only three people that converted to Islam. And the circulation of that purported assassination attempt the first circulation of that report is by one of these converts from Banu Nadir himself. And when I see something like that, who knows what his motivations were? But it just, it's, and, and something like this, for it to be of singular transmission if someone, if, if there was an assassination, really an assassination attempt, and we hear about it through the singular transmissions of initially, uh, the initial reporting of this event is by someone who just happens to be a convert from Banu Madir. It's just, it, it, there are numerous methodological problems with it. Okay, so this is the part that I'm very suspicious of. The, the, the whole purported assassination attempt. So going back to the more reliable parts of the narrative. Banu Nadir allied themselves with Quraysh. They, when the Prophet والسلام, because the, 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 the Prophet just didn't rely, didn't just say, well, God will take care of things. The Prophet, in, in fact, had a very, well-run intelligence system, which tells you a lot about how a Muslim should be. The prophets confronts Banu Nadir. They're unable to deny. So initially, the agreement with Banu Nadir is, you will leave Medina they say that they are going to either go to Sham to a, 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 a city which is uh, sort of like at the outskirts of Syria. Some of them said, no, we're going to go to Khaybar. But anyway, but the agreement initially is that they will leave Medina because they've breached their covenant, but the the farmlands will remain theirs and they will come back every year to um uh, uh, what is the word, to um when you collect the pre, the the uh, harvest uh, harvest the the crops they spread the date farms basically because they apparently they had good date farms and they will come back annually to harvest the, the, the crops. The lands will remain theirs, but they're going to evacuate the, because Muslims couldn't trust them anymore. After that agreement is made, again, it is disputed whether Kab ibn al-Ashraf is the one who reached out to Abdullah ibn Ubay 
uh, and others, or if they reached out to him, you get conflicting reports. Um, yeah. So you have conflicting reports whether, and it's not just Abdullah ibn Ubay, but you have these key figures in, in this drama, like Rafa' ibn Tabut, um, and um, what was the name of the other guy? Abdullah ibn Nabtal. Uh, so Rafa' ibn Tabut and Abdullah ibn Nabtal, and they, who initiates the contact is not clear, but the, the critical development is that the same folks, about a thousand or so people, that withdrew from the Battle of Uhud, tell Banu Nadir, stand firm and do not leave your homes. Defy Muhammad. And tell Muhammad, we're not leaving. And you can do whatever you want. And importantly, the same type of communication and assurance is received from Quraysh itself. Not just the, the what we now call the hypocrites, what back then were clearly an internally dissident group. You know, you have Abdullah ibn Ubay and people like Rafa' ibn Tabut and, and so on. It, it, it is very clear. They withdrew from battle. They are constantly opposing. The, it, they are very critical of the constitution of Medina, of the whole, and especially after the Battle of Uhud, as we've talked about. And now they are in contact with Banu Nadir and saying, you know, defy him. And if you defy him and things get to the point of battle, if battle breaks up between you and Muslims, we're going to support you and we're going to come to your rescue. And so you refuse to leave. And when Muslims um, encircle your fortifications, will come and attack Muslims from behind, and they'll be sandwiched between, between you and us, which spells sure defeat. And of course, Banu Nadir is further emboldened when Kabu ibn al-Ashraf sends messengers to Quraysh, and Quraysh says, defy the man, he's just been defeated, he just lost 70 companions, he's weak, defy him, and if things get to the point of a, a, of confrontation, you can rely on us. It looks like an extremely grim picture, wouldn't you say? I mean, if you are a Muslim at that time, you've just had 70 of your friends massacred. You just had many people who were killed in Uhud. And you just have migrants, and we'll talk about in a second, the, the Muhajirun who've lost all their possessions and property in Mecca. And 
and are, are confronting very serious economic challenges after they migrated to Medina, you just have the native Medinians who are put to a very severe test and it looks now like a major betrayal that could lead to the entire, literally, the Medina combusting from the inside. The native Medinians who are dissidents joining forces with the Jewish, with Banu al-Madir in particular, and Quraysh has an internal now ally in Medina, and it's, it looks like it, it's very desperate. Okay. At this point, the Prophet ﷺ knows that there is no choice. Banu al-Nadir said, we're not leaving. And if after they've negated or after they've canceled their, the, the entire negotiated agreement and allied themselves with Quraysh, it, it, this is the type of defiance that if, you know, you either make it or break it. It's just, there's just no other way. And although Muslims are aware of the extreme insecurity that they might find themselves sandwiched, in, in other words, an internal enemy emerging, they have no choice but, in fact, to lay siege to Ben al-Nadir's fortification and say, you must leave. And this is precisely what they do. And the siege lasts for about 20 days. Lo and behold, though, the allies that Ben al-Nadir expected to come join them never materialize. So, and this is one of the sort of interesting stories that no one ever writes about in, in the Sira. Although, you know, with people like Aus ibn Qaisi, Wadi ibn Malik, uh, a, a fellow, I can't remember his last name, called Da'as, another fellow called Suwayyid. Why didn't they come to Banun Nadir's aid? There is a tribal element, right? There is even a narrative. There is even a narrative although, again, it's not widely reported, that the Prophet ﷺ goes to these folks and uh, who, who had allied themselves with Banu Nadir and told them that they will come and fight Muslims with them. 
that the Prophet goes and confronts him and says, you are going to fight, you're going to betray your brothers, you are actually going to stab us in the back. It's a, I mean, I don't know how authentic this report is, that, that in fact there, the, there is this confrontation and a call to, sort of a tribal call in a sense, because you Arabs are going to fight against your own kind by joining the Israelites against us. Um, but, So there is, I'm sure, a, a tribal element is that, you know, it, that because we get these these hints and, and even, anyway, that, that there were some people just at the idea that we're going to kill our fellow Ansar, our fellow Khasraj, we're going to kill, we are going to slaughter family members, tribal members who are Muslim in alliance with an Israelite, the Banu Nadir, and you know, the Israelites have, they're the money lenders, they're the ones who control the markets, haven't treated us very well, do we really want to go that route? So, we get reports of pushback against Abdullah ibn Ubay by people still who didn't like Muslims and didn't like the Prophet. But that in itself, as we will see, is not an answer to that question. Because they could have, it could have very well been an opportunity for Abdullah ibn Ubay to successfully rally his allies and get rid of the nightmare of Muhammad once and for all and return things in Medina to the way they were before Medina got burdened, saddled with all these migrants, all these foreigners who have come and settled there. And what is remarkable is Quraysh itself so it's, it's confidently believing that things will unravel, but that things in Medina, that, 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 that Muhammad and his followers will collapse after the Battle of Uhud. But despite repeated messages from Banu al-Nadir to Quraysh, Quraysh eff- effectively first says, yeah, yeah, we're coming. But 20 days pass and they never show up. And eventually, especially after Kaab ibn al-Ashraf is killed, assassinated, who assassinated him, under what circumstance, you get... Uh, Report. That's a whole different story. I mean, that we we could go into if we ever do the Sira project. That you know, but 
with the loss of Kaab ibn al-Ashraf, their, their, their leader, who has sort of uh, played the leading role, Ben al-Nadir finds that the, the followers of Abdullah ibn Ubay are endlessly arguing about whether they should do this. They, they haven't, you know, they didn't deliver. Quraysh keeps saying we're coming, but they didn't show up. And Kaab ibn al-Ashraf was assassinated, so they lost their leaders. So they lose heart and they give up. And when they give up, they, the, the Prophet ﷺ allows them to take whatever property they can load on their camels with them and leave Medina. What they have to leave behind is immovable property. And because this is the second betrayal, Muslims tell them, we're not going to defeat robot. We don't trust you. We don't want to see your faces back in Medina at all. So this idea of that you can come back and harvest your crops and all of that, forget that. It's not going to happen. And in, indeed, Banu Nadir, most of them go to Syria, where they will settle for centuries, and some of them go to Khaybar, joining another Jewish fortress. And as I said, only three of them convert. And those three remain in Medina because they, they chose to convert, although again, whether they are real converts or they just converted in, in name, Allahu Alam. You know, that that's a longer story. Now, Banu Nadir was a wealthy tribe and they couldn't, as much as they tried, they couldn't load everything on their camels. So what they left behind was substantial. And once again now, Muslims are confronted with a very different type of challenge. From extreme economic hardship, as we saw in, in Surah Al-Jum'ah, now there is substantial property that is left behind that according to the, law, the laws of warfare in Arab society, and actually in generally, not in Roman society and not in the Persian Empire, but definitely in so much of the Mediterranean, is that the soldiers get to loot whatever they can. What? Oh, they're back now. Oh. The internet was frozen for a little bit. Oh, okay. The soldiers get to loot whatever they can. And definitely 
the people that camped Devil attack? Yeah. There's devil attack? Yep. What do we do? Take a break. It doesn't work too. Okay, let's let's take a break and try to respond to the devil attack. Do dua. Everyone do dua. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. You know, I, I, I believe in devil attacks, and I'm not surprised that there is a devil attack for this surah. Uh, because what I... But inshallah, what, what I have to say is... Um, okay. Um, so, where were we? The people that camped. Huh? The people that camped. The people that camped. <laughs> the people that camped. Oh, 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 okay. So, now, the people who took place in this, uh, took part in the siege, we know about the economic situation in Medina. We, we saw what happened at Surah Al-Jumma'ah. And obviously, they're thinking, well, this is our chance to walk off with what we can help our families with. And the Quran comes in these circumstances and with a coup. The Quran comes in these circumstances and says no. The, we saw in Surah Al-Anfal, which was revealed before, Surah Al-Hash, that already the Quran has put a limit on looting. But the Quran came and said, well, in this situation, you have to rise up to a new challenge and that all of the property is not going to be um, in the realm of private enrichment, all of the property is going to go to a public treasury. And we'll see what Allah says about this. And if you think this wasn't a challenge to a lot of people who thought that the end of their economic woes is at hand only for Allah to come and say nope think again but before I do that and before we walk through the rest of Surah Al-Hash I want to go back to the Torah 
not because we talked about Deuteronomy, but because of my frustrations at how oblivious Muslims are about how their tradition compares to the tradition of others. There is, without a doubt, in the, you know, we, we've all been exposed to Islamophobia. And Islamophobia loves to give you the impression. And I don't get the chance, because of the lack of support, alhamdulillah, to focus my efforts on responding to Islamophobia. But if only you knew Islamophobia loves to give the impression that Muslims have tons of things to be ashamed of, embarrassed about, troubled by. We never return the gaze. And I'm going to take this opportunity just for a little bit to show you what returning the gaze can do. And let me just clarify a little bit further. And this is why I was really surprised with Grace's introduction. When people talk to us Muslims, they always talk as if we have to explain the historical problematics within our tradition while talking to the other is always from the realm of, oh, we share all the humanistic values that we are aware of. Your tradition is clean of problems. And you see this in the most pronounced form with the so-called former Muslims, those Muslims who leave their faith and pollute the airwaves, the air, pollute social spaces, um, with whatever pontifications they have. Look, here are some just select passages that I want to share with you. This is from the Deuteronomy. If your brother, your own mother's son, or your own son or daughter, or the wife of your bosom, or your closest friend, entices you in secret saying, 
come, let us worship other gods whom neither you nor your fathers have experienced. From among the gods of the peoples around you, either near to you or distant anywhere from one end of the earth to the other, do not assent or give heed to him. Do not assent or give heed to him. But show him no pity or compassion. And do not shield him, but take his life. Let your hand be the first against him to put him to death. And the hand of the rest of the people thereafter. Stone him to death. For he thought to make you stray from the Lord your God. Compare this the Torah's command if your brother, your mother's son, your son or your daughter or your wife or your closest friend entices you from your faith and tells you let's worship other gods put him to death stone him to death compare this to that if your parents try to force you not to believe be kind to them but don't obey them. Compare this to there is no compulsion in religion and compare this to an incident that we'll talk about in Surah Al-Hash in a second. Because Muslims were aware of the different ethical paradigm that Islam, Muslims back then, unlike us, were aware in, of the different ethical shift that Islam presented to the prior religions. Look. This is again Deuteronomy. If there is among you in one settlement that the Lord your God gave you, a man or woman who has affronted the Lord your God and transgressed God's covenants, turning to the worship of other gods, bowing down to them, and you have been informed of you or you've learned of it, then you shall make an inquiry. You shall investigate. If it is true, the fact that it is established that a abhorrent thing was perpetuated in Israel, you shall take the man or woman who did that wicked act and you shall stone them, man or woman, to death. A person shall be put to death only on the testimony of two witnesses. This is another sample from Chronicles.
They brought sacrifices to the Lord on that day. They brought 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep of the spoil of warfare. They slaughtered them for the Lord. They entered into a covenant to worship the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. But whoever would not worship the Lord God of Israel shall be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. This is from Chronicles. Now, it, it, it is for, for people in the know, for people who have actually bothered to spend their life learning the languages, studying the material, to see Muslims, the, 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 the way they even conduct a freaking interview and can't clearly say in what way Islam was moral progress to humanity is the most deflating and morally defeating thing a scholar can experience. We get the scholars we deserve. We get the teachers we deserve. It is because Muslims create their teachers. They create the expectations for their teachers. We we Muslims created the Islamophobia industry. We've created the Islamophobia industry with our apathy, with our laziness, with our ignorance, with our stupidity. We've created it. A very important incident takes place in the context of Surat al-Hash. that speaks volumes. When Muslims lay siege to Banu Nadir, in the course of the siege, six palm trees are either burned or cut down. Six palm trees. What is most remarkable about this is that cutting down of the six palm trees creates an ethical crisis in the Muslim community. Between those who say, we shouldn't do this as Muslims. How can we cut down the palm trees? And those who say, we needed to cut down the palm trees 
for military purposes. Now, what is it? In the midst of this controversy, we have reports that whether it is, they are, their, their symbolic role is more important than their historical role. So whether these reports describe an historical event is not as important as the fact that they symbolize a real debate within the Muslim community. And what are these reports? The reports are, is that people from Banu Nadir somehow engage Muslims, and this is why you know you have questions about their historical veracity, because under the circumstances of a siege, how did they engage Muslims? But anyway, the reports tell us that they engaged Muslims and said, Muhammad, isn't it true that you claim that you are a prophet who wants good, salah, wants goodness? هل وجدت فيما أنزل عليك إباحة الفساد في الأرض؟ So, is it part of your perform project that you cut down palm trees? Isn't it true that your Quran forbids corruption on earth? And isn't this corrupting corruption on earth? And we are told in this reports that فشق ذلك على الرسول. وَوَجَدَ الْمُسْلِمُونَ فِي أَنفُسِهِمْ That this burdened, this saddened, troubled the Prophet And that became a crisis amongst Muslims. Muslims were well aware that the ethics of the Torah was the God of Israel, a very tribal theology, and a theology that is very nothing like the Judaism that we hear about in the Judeo-Christian rhetoric. It was known for its harshness, for its draconianism, and that Islam, when Islam came and said no compulsion in religion, and abrogated, contradicted so much of what is in the Torah, this was an ideological challenge to Jews. To the point that when, in fact, just witnessing six palm trees 
burned or cut down, they leveraged that in an ideological battle and said to Muslims effectively, how are you moral progress? And that, that troubled Muslims. Now, compare what this incident about cutting down six palm trees and that it became a crisis amongst Muslims. Compare that with a lot of the nonsense we find in the Hadith tradition that often portray Muslims as it, if cutting down six palm trees raises the question of causing corruption on the earth, how about blowing a bomb that kills innocent human beings? How do Muslims get from early Islam in which just the cutting down of palm trees becomes a serious ethical question to the Islam where we see Muslims butchering each other. And in fact, the value of even human life. How do we get from there to here? And what does Surat al-Hash tell us? If, this is why I, I, I say, it needs scholars to read the Hadith tradition. The average Muslim should not be reading Hadith tradition. Hadith tradition is replete with people who converted to Islam for ulterior motives and circulated traditions to defeat the Quran, not to uphold the Quran, but to defeat the Quran. Hadith traditions is replete with people who converted to Islam and circulated the traditions to malign the character of the Prophet to make the Prophet look bad. Hadith tradition is replete with people who joined Islam and circulated traditions in the service of empire and power and dictators and tyrants. Hadith tradition is replete with people who circulated traditions to defeat Al-Bayt, the family of the Prophet to undermine their legitimacy and their moral guidance, to contradict the moral lessons that they conveyed to the Ummah. Now, you might wonder, what, what, is it really Surat al-Hash can give us guidance in all of this, about all of this? Okay, let's walk through Surat al-Hash now. So it begins, as we said, 
سبح لله ما في السماوات والأرض وما في الأرض وهو العزيز الحكيم Existence testifies to who your Lord is. Now, immediately, it gets to the heart of the matter. Allah knows that many of you think, look, this is a major victory. We were at major danger, at major risk. But we laid say, siege to Banu Nadir. And because we laid siege to the Banu Nadir, somehow we scared off the Munafiqun, the, the promised 1,000 contingency that we were going to join them. And we even scared off Quraysh. Allah's response to this is, هو الذي أخرج الذين كفروا من أهل الكتاب من ديارهم لأول الحشر. It is God who turned out these people. It is God who made these people evacuate their homes. في أول الحشر. Now, أول الحشر, we pause here because of something this this expression the first gathering what first gathering many commentators paused at this and said well it must mean that the evacuation of banu nadir looked like you know the way that people gather in crowds and that the first gathering is that they all got together to be to leave to Syria, to Sham, and the second gathering is the final day. But that's not entirely satisfactory. Because what does hash signify here? That it is Allah that it is effectively saying it is Allah that won this battle for you, not you. It is Allah who did. And Allah the awwal al-hash that and here I'm I'm this is very different from the tafsir tradition. So just disclaimer, so you know. That it is not your hash, it is not your gathering. All the Mufassirun took it as referring the gathering that it's talking about is the gathering of Jews to leave, to exile. No. It is not your gathering, Muslims, that achieve these results. Yes, you gather to lay siege, but it is not you. In fact, مَا ظَنَنْتُمْ أَنْ يَخْرُجُوا وَظَنُّوا أَنَّهُمْ مَانِعَتُهُمْ خُصُونُهُمْ مِنَ اللَّهِ 
that, in fact, you yourself didn't think that this is winnable. You're in deep trouble. And they thought that they're in good shape. That, excuse me, that they have their fortifications, they're well supplied, they have their food source. Yes, they had six palm trees destroyed, but they have plenty of other palm trees that could have gotten them. And they had support that they were relying on. And Allah comes and says, In fact, you have to understand that Allah, that all of this was a psychological defeat. Allah placed fear in their heart. If it, it, it could have gone the other way. They could have gotten the stamina and the fearlessness to defy you. And things could have gone precisely the other way. All of these people could have gotten together to deal a massive blow against you. But in fact, it is because of divine intervention and divine involvement in your affairs that they lost heart. And when they lost heart, what effectively you've become an instrumentality in Allah's hands, and they themselves become an instrumentality in Allah's hands. So look, Allah cast terror in their hearts. So they destroyed their own homes with their own hands and with your hands. So reflect and understand. You people of insight, reflect and understand. You can take the same set of events and the same set of events can materialize in radically different results. Yes, you've gathered. Yes, you've come together. But without the reason that things went the way that they went is that you've become an instrumentality in Allah's hands and they've become an instrumentality in Allah's hands. In their own defeat. Okay. And then the most And if and in fact, Allah took it 
easy on them because Allah ordained for them banishment. And if they would have not banished, could things, it is in within Allah's power that things could have gone in a far worse way for them. On this world and in the hereafter. Then Allah talks about, gets to the issue of that ethical dispute. And it is remarkable that the Quran talks about the ethical dispute of cutting down six palm trees. And effectively, Allah says, listen, in this situation, this is not, although you went all, all on the defensive and you felt deeply troubled by that question of whether this is corruption on earth, it is as if Allah is saying, gain perspective. Whether those who supported the cutting down of the six palm trees or those who opposed it, both of you are correct. This is not what's intended by corruption on earth. Allah doesn't say that it's wrong that you thought about this. Allah says, both of you are correct. Those who thought that it's unjustified under the circumstance had a point of view that's entirely defensible. And those who opposed it as unjustified and that we should be doing better also have a completely justified understanding. This is the genesis of plurality and tolerance within Islam that unfortunately Muslims lost centuries later. How both perspectives for and against can be correct as God's will. ما قطعتم من لينا أو تركتموها قائمة على أصولها فبإذن الله وليغذي الفاسقين Both are God's permission, God's will. Then, وَمَا أَفَاءَ اللَّهُ عَلَى رَسُولِهِ مِنْهُمْ فَمَا أَوْجَفْتُمْ عَلَيْهِ مِنْ خَيْلٍ وَلَا رِكَابٍ وَلَكِنَ اللَّهُ, ولكن الله يُصَلِّتُ رُسُلُهُ رُسُلَهُ عَلَى مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَاللَّهُ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٍ ما أفاء الله على رسوله من أهل القرى فلله وللرسول ولذي القربى واليتامى والمساكين وابن السبيل كي لا يكون دولة بين الأغنياء منكم وما أتاكم الرسول فخذوه وما نهاكم عنه فانتهوا واتقوا الله إن الله شديد العقاب So Hamzad says Now, to the heart of the matter, 
what you gained as spoils, contrary to what you might believe, it is not because of your efforts. In, in here, the metaphor is riding horses or riding camels, meaning it is not because of your war effort. But, in fact, the defeat, the victory, was entirely God's. Muslim jurists, reading this centuries later, made a distinction, which is a typical classical legalistic way of, within the times, of reading the text. The way Muslim jurists read this is that they said, well, if whatever spoils of war that are the result of a sulh, of a peace agreement, not actual combat, that the, all the spoils go to the treasury. And then the treasury decides what to do with the spoils. But if it is the result of combat, then only if one-fifth goes to the treasury and the rest is divided among the combatants. And they made this distinction between a victory obtained as a result of a peace agreement and a victory obtained as a result of actual combat. In practice, that legal distinction itself became quickly outdated as the state found it increasingly impractical to leave the matter of spoils of war to, to be bound to distribute the spoils of war to combatants, to soldiers in other words, especially when these soldiers became salaried and became career military personnel. And even that distinction that was drawn in early Islamic jurisprudence, which is, by the way, a distinction that was commonly known in Mediterranean law before Islam, the difference between spoils of war as a result of, of a peace agreement or as a result of... of uh, and basically what the state said is that whatever soldiers can carry out from the, from the battleground on their person, they can take. But beyond certain items, but they excluded all types of things like gold and silver and, you know, they're, they're, the list of exclusions is ex very extensive. But other than that, they have to turn to the treasury. But that is a juristic explanation of, or a juristic interpretation of a Quranic text that is not mandated by the Quranic text. What Allah is talking about is Allah is telling, is talking about the historical event and saying, 
I know that you think, because, listen, there was a siege, and the siege lasted 20 days. And yes, it's maybe Muslims didn't fight a battle like they did in Badr or did in Uhud, but laying a siege is hard work. And there were some casualties, and there was some combat. It wasn't, you know, a, a, a Disney ride. So the idea that, oh, well, you know, it's, no, you don't get a part of the, the, the spoils because you really didn't fight, it doesn't jive. It doesn't work historically. What Allah is saying, I know that the expectation is that what are we going to get from this? But Allah has other plans. And Allah, in order for these plans to work, you first must understand that you were an instrumentality in Allah's hands. In fact, your enemy themselves were an instrumentality in Allah's hands. And what is, what is it that Allah is doing with the spoils here? Whatever spoils were taken, they have to be turned over. They belonged to God and the Apostle, meaning they have to be turned over to the Prophet. And They are given to the Prophet because they're going to be expended to near of kin. Muhammad Asad puts near of kin of deceased believers. I'll, I'm going to comment about this in a second. To orphans, to the needy, to the wayfarer, and likay the justification here is critical. Why? So that so that it may not be a benefit going around and around among such of you who are already well off. Clearly the logic of public good. Allah comes at this point and says, there is a tendency. The tendency is that the powerful are going to take more. Those of you who are well-connected, coming from the best clans, the best tribes, those of you who are the most physically able are going to make off the best. But this is not what Allah wants. You are not here in a rat race to get rich. And again, I, that's why I'm shocked at Grace's introduction. You are not here to look after number one and just take care of your own wealth. 
Yes, these are very difficult circumstances. Yes, this is a very serious challenge. But you have to think of others. And as we will see, you have to think of others because what Allah expects from you is to put others ahead of yourself. Sacrifice. And that if you do not understand this logic, what's going to happen is that wealth is self-perpetuating. The rich will get richer. And this is not what Allah wants. Wow. So, in fact, the Prophet ﷺ, who are the most needy people in society at this point? Well, it is not a surprise that the most needy people in society were the people who are not natives. The people who either migrated from Mecca or people from various tribes around Medina who converted to Islam don't have homes, don't have businesses, and they they are constitute the predominant percentage of the poor. And native Medinians understood this. In fact, only three native Medinians qualified are at, at the poverty line where they get would get some of the spoils. All the rest were not natives. The Prophet goes goes to meets the Ansar, meets the natives, and says first he starts out by thanking them and praising them for the way that they sacrificed their homes and businesses, shared their wealth, their homes and businesses with migrants. But the Prophet explains to them, says, listen, these people, because they've lost their livelihood, refugees, are dependent on you for their well-being. They share your homes, they share your businesses. There was a choice, in fact the language is here. In ahbabtum qassamtu ma afa'allah alayya min bani nadir baynakum wa bayna al-muhajirin. وَكَانَ الْمُهَاجِرُونَ عَلَى مَا هُمْ عَلَيْهِ مِنَ السُّكْنَةِ فِي مَسَاكِنِكُمْ وَمُشَارَكَةِ لَكُمْ وَالْمُشَارَكَةِ لَكُمْ فِي أَمْوَالِكُمْ وَإِنْ أَحْبَبْتُمْ أَعْطَيْتَهُمْ ذَلِكَ وَخَرَجُوا مِنْ دِيَارِكُمْ فَرَضُوا بِقِسْمَةِ ذَلِكَ فِي الْمُهَاجِرِينَ وَطَابَتْ أَنْفُسُهُمْ What the report is saying is that the Prophet ﷺ tells him, I know that right now 
the refugees are living in your homes, sharing your incomes. Allah gave me, put the, the, this, this, the, the spoils in my discretion. I could give you a share, but then we leave the muhajireen in their dependent status, in their dependent position. But if we limit aid to those who need it, they might be able to become independent of you. And they understood that logic and accepted it. Now, just to tell you, show you how the Hadith tradition, although clearly the Quran says that this money is to the Prophet so not to the Prophet to put it in his pocket, but to direct this money towards orphans, the needy, refugees, etc. You, you still get a hadith. This one attributed to Umar ibn al-Khattab. The type of hadith that Islamophobes love to jump on that says says كانت أموال بن المضير مما أفاء الله على رسوله ومما لم يوجف عليه المسلمون بخيل ولا ركاب وكانت لرسول الله خاصة فكان ينفق على أهله منها نفقة سنة ثم يجعل ما بقى في السلاح والكراع والكراع عدة في سبيل الله so what this is saying is that the, the spoils the money of بن المضير went to the prophet and the Prophet was spending on his own family from it for a whole year. And whatever was left over, he would spend on weapons and whatever is needed for jihad. That tradition directly contradicts the Quran. And other than the fact that it contradicts all the other traditions that says that the money went to the poor in Medina, but directly contradicts the Quran, attributed to Umar ibn al-Khattab that it went to the Prophet Khassa and that he supported his family from this money for a whole year. And of course, you can spend six months of your life looking in a tradition like this until you find the usual characters who are of suspect conversion to Islam or who had clear Amawid loyalties, who had a clear incentive in making abuses of power appear normal, moral, 
ethical and Islamic. Again, for the millionth time, that is why the average Muslim is not qualified to just open up Bukhari and go on their merry way. This hadith is authenticated by more people of other hadith than I can mention to you. Although it contradicts the Quran, and although in its stringent chains of transmission were clear apologists for Amawid abuses of power, including apologists for the Amawids murdering people from Ali al-Bayt. If you have half a brain, you understand what's going on. They wanted to say, well, you know, if the Prophet could take the money, you can't blame Khalifa if they pocket the money. As I keep saying, Islamophobes are Islamophobes because of us. We create our Islamophobes in the same way that we create our teachers. Okay. One final point before we break for Maghrib. Why does in Surah Al-Hash it includes Lidhiq Qurba? Two schools of thought. One is like what Muhammad Asad adopts, that the relatives of Muslims who lost their life in battle can get a share. They're like the orphans, they're like the masakin, they're like the refugees. The second school of thought says the Qurba was referring to the relatives of Abdul Muttalib, to the relatives of the Prophet ﷺ himself. Why? Because the family of the Prophet were excluded from the Sadaqat. They could not receive any of the Sadaqat, whether Zakat money or any money that goes to charity. That resulted in the family of the Prophet existing in dire poverty. I'm not sure which is, but it's immaterial because there's evidence that the Prophet gave money to needy relatives of deceased people who were martyred in battle, whether in the battle of Banu al-Madir itself or in earlier battles, or even those who were massacred in, in the massacre of Urayna. Um, but also, the historical evidence 
of the remarkable poverty of the household of the Prophet is a story that needs to, Muslims have buried it because it embarrasses them. Because if their Prophet demanded this standard of himself, all types of Muslims, you know, the the uh, the uh, shiuch sultan, the 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 shiuch that always serve people in power, the, you always find them, you know, invited to to you know high class events by by people in power. They have always go out of their way to emphasize the ritualistic, pedantic sunnah of the Prophet, as if what the Prophet's sunnah was about is their beard, their thalb, their this, their that. How about his sunnah with zuhd? How about his sunnah with ethical uprightness and righteousness? And the way that he refused all venues of corruption Shiuch al-Sultan never emphasized that because they know that it condemns them and allows people to condemn them. And as we keep saying, we deserve the teachers we get. Okay, let's pray, Maghrib. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Okay. So, so far... We've established that the spoils going to to the public authority, Allah and the Prophet, because and the, the, the justification here is very critical that it cannot, the system that Allah wants cannot be and is not that the rich simply get richer. That there is an entitlement for orphans and the needy and the refugee. And it is what, which the obvious conclusion that whatever you devise as an Islamic system, it cannot be a system that allows the richer to simply capitalize on their power and their wealth. And then further, this is eight. يبتغون فضلا من الله ورضوانه وينصرون الله ورسوله أولئك هم الصادقون and so and to the impoverished migrants the muhajirin who have been driven away from their homelands and lost their possessions Because they did so because they were 
aiding the cause of God and God's apostle. Okay. And then, وَالَّذِينَ تَبَوَّأُوا الدَّارِ وَالْإِيمَانِ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ يُحِبُّونَ مَنْ هَاجَرَ إِلَيْهِمْ وَلَا يَجِدُونَ فِي صُدُورِهِمْ حَاجَةً مِمَّا أُوتُوا وَيَأْثُرُونَ عَلَى أَنفُسِهِمْ وَلَوْ كَانَ بِهِمْ خَصَاصَةً وَمَنْ يُوقَ شُحَّ نَفْسِهِ فَأُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْمُفْلِحُونَ So this is now nine. And it shall be offered to okay, uh, the poor from among uh, um, the, the, the refugees or the, the migrants um, and those who love all that come to them in search of refuge and who harbor in their heart no grudge whatsoever, whatever the others may have been given, but rather give them preference over themselves even though poverty be their own lot for such as from their own covetousness are they are saved. And I'm gonna comment on this. It is they that it is they are the ones who are truly the triumphant or the truly successful. So here clearly it's talking about the natives and the fact that the natives are coming to terms with yet another sacrifice but what it says is very important that they sacrificed already to aid the migrants and they gave without holding a grudge and that they put others ahead of themselves even if, in fact, they are needy. And then that comment, that who can escape, and I will comment on the word shuh, that who can escape shuh in, in themselves are the truly triumphant. So, Allah, while affirming that logic that the rich cannot be allowed to get richer, but the dynamic, the secret, or the elixir for being in this position of closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to put it simply the willingness to sacrifice without grudge. That yes, Allah knows you natives have sacrificed. But not just that Allah wants you to sacrifice, but Allah wants you to sacrifice without holding a grudge. If you are going to sacrifice with bitterness, is going, if you're going to sacrifice while holding score, keeping score, it's not going to work. And among the many metaphorical reports, there are tons of them, but 
the tradition is replete with reports such as a hadith narrated from Abu Huraira that a man from the migrants comes to complain to the Prophet that of, of the financial hardship that he's in and the Prophet then goes and does what he often did and he announces to the, to the public at large who is willing to put up this man, meaning support this man. And that a Madinian, an Ansari, stepped forward and said, I will take him in. I will give him shelter in my home. The problem, though, is that this um, Ansari himself, when he takes his guest home, his wife tells him, we hardly have enough for our own children. Um, let me see if I can find some of the language. Um, I think I cut and paste what um yeah so uh, uh it's reported that it is Abu Talha al-Ansari is the man who who stepped forward to give refuge to the migrant so that he goes uh, home and then his wife says, Wallahi ma'indi illa sabiyya, that all I have is the, that what I was saving to feed our child, a daughter. So, or, or not a daughter, actually, it's, it's a sabiyya. It's not sabiyya, it's sabiyya. I misread it. Um, the, the, the children, because it's a plural. Because also we know that Abu Talha Ansari had several children, not a daughter, just a daughter. Anyway, so he says to his wife, the children are going to have to go to bed without Asha, without dinner. Um, and so turn off the lights and put the children to bed so we can offer food, so we can feed the prophet's guest. The tradition is replete with stories like this. Um, there, there is a story. I mean, whether it's historical or again or or, or metaphorical, it doesn't matter. The, the, the historicity, it doesn't matter. That uh, the 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 head of the um, the head of the sheep that. Um, went through seven homes. It's a sort of a well-known well story that um, that a man gave um, uh, a, 
had slaughtered the sheep and then gave its head to um, one of the companions of the Prophet. And the companion of the Prophet said, no, this should go to someone more needy than me. So he gave it to someone more needy. So then the person he gave it to said, no, this should go to someone more needy than me. So he gave it to someone else. And it went on like that until it went through seven homes and then returned to the person who originally gave it. So, you know, the, the last person who got it thought, well, it should go to someone more needy than, than me. And, and it didn't know that the person that it started with was he thought of as the, the, the most needy of them all. And so it went through, the, the, it's called the head of the sheep that went through the seven homes. Um, these traditions memorialized an ethical norm. And the ethical norm is they put others ahead of them even if they're in need. Now here, shuh is greed. Whoever can overcome their own greed, the greed of the self. Those are the truly triumphant. Why did I say I'll posit this? Because so again, as an example of what people, how the tradition contains competing narratives and orientations. Although the Quranic verse is clearly saying, overcome your own selfishness. Clearly saying, the challenge is not to think of the ways, all the ways that you need and you come first, but to actually accustom yourself, get yourself used to thinking of what others need first. It's a challenge. And yet, you find a hadith that were circulated that said, whoever gives zakah, whoever gives zakah, they've overcome their selfishness. Really? These hadiths, when you spend a lifetime studying, you find that they were circulated by the same apologists for power that want to justify great imbalances in wealth, like some of our modern teachers who say that there's no limits to private property in Islam, apparently. There's these same individuals who were Salatin, they served those in power, circulated a hadith that says, oh, all that Allah requires you is to give zakah, that's it. What the Quran is talking about is sacrificing clearly beyond the zakah. And the hadith, that, all the hadith, whether the the the, 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 the 
the the the sheep's head that went to seven homes or or many of the others clearly are talking about a level of self-sacrifice that far exceeds that. But again, the tradition is not simply a neutral historical body. It contains various ideological competing orientations that requires intellectual maturity and ethical maturity in plowing through that tradition. If Jews can have in the heart of their Torah something that tells them who doesn't believe in the God of Israel, I'd stone him to death, kill him. Even if they're your wife or your brother or sister, The challenge with that, within our tradition is not nearly as onerous. But it is our defeatism as Muslims, our brokenness, our backwardness that makes us feel so broken. What can I say? So now, So then you're starting to think at this point, okay, so all of this is to explain, all of this is to explain why spoils are going to go to the needy and is, is it just about that? Then Allah comes and says something just turns all the tables. Those you understand that this Quran, if it was a mountain who had received this Quran, this mountain would have broken apart. The difference between the mountain and you is the mountain doesn't have volition. The weight of the ethical message of this Quran, what it is teaching, is so overwhelming that even a mountain wouldn't be able to bear it. You human beings, because of your volition and the choice embedded in your intellect, are often oblivious to it. And then Allah layers this by saying, well, actually, right before this first, 
before the mountain first tells you, sorry, I skipped a step. You think about your moral choices and don't be like those who forgot God so God allowed them to forget themselves and understand that if this Quran was decreed upon a mountain, it would fall apart. Then you pause and you think, we know that all the musabbihat presents human beings with an ethical challenge. And Allah says, understand that this you confronted extremely difficult circumstances and as if by miracle you overcame these circumstances and understand that it wasn't your victory but Allah's, Allah's victory and because it's not your victory it is also not your money and because it's not your money, you must understand that what Allah expects from you is nothing short of an ethic of sacrifice and giving. And if you don't understand this, then it is as if you've missed the point of the Quran. And as if you've forgotten Allah, so Allah allows you to forget yourself. Then, just as you are wrapping your brain around us, say, wait. So, what is my hashr? What is my challenge? What is the point in which I am confronted with these ultimate choices which will determine fate? Allah comes and says to you, understand, السلام المؤمن المهيمن العزيز الجبار المتكبر سبحان الله عما يشركون هو الله الخالق البارئ المصور له الأسماء الحسنى يسبح له ما في السماوات والأرض وهو العزيز الحكيم This is God the one and only this is God the Supreme. Safety, well-being, and goodness rests with God. As does certitude being anchored. As does not being confused or anxious or wishy-washy as does
honor and victory. As does creation comprehension, understanding. In fact, all goodness in existence is from this God. All goodness emanates from this God. In the same way, that creation acknowledges, affirms, is an extension of its interconnectedness with its Lord. Your challenge is to do nothing less than that. That's why it ends with يُسَبِّحُ لَهُ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَهُوَ الْعَزِيزُ الْحَكِيمُ But if you truly understand what supplication of your Lord is, you will no longer have a problem with the idea of sacrifice, with overcoming your selfishness. And that, and not just that, but overcoming, allowing the type of injustice on earth where the rich get richer and the needy and the orphan and the destitute is forgotten. You want to understand why Allah gave you victory? It is because of tasbihillah. If you don't have Allah's victory, it is because you failed in your job. in supplicating you failed in giving acknowledging in other words you've exercised your choice you've exercised your intellect you exercised your volition but you didn't rise to the challenge of being an affirmation of Allah's Asma'il Husna. The, the beautific names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In other, you yourself failed in the challenge in using the intellect to affirm at-tasbih lillah, to, to, to affirm the supremacy because there is no way of affirming that supremacy if you put your selfishness first, if you don't understand what sacrifice is, and if you don't understand why is it that the orphans and the needy and the refuge have rights. Surat al-Hash then stands as a test. It's, it's typical Quranic style, takes a historical event, dissects the historical event in order to teach you a moral lesson. So Surat al-Hash, effectively, it's, a, it's as if God is saying, 
Look, Allah stood with these people and helped them out of a an impossible pickle. But Allah helped them out of an impossible pickle because of their moral standing with Allah. The clear implication and clear lesson in Surah Al-Hash is if Allah doesn't help you out of your pickles, you failed. That is why I said I was just overcome, overwhelmed, because with what Grace was talking about at the beginning, because if you're Muslim and you look around at the state of Muslims and you understand the Quran, you can't sit there gleefully talking about rituals and... That means you're just divorced from the entire message of the Quran. It's like you have no comprehension. You're, You're a blank page. Imagine, think of his history in the alternative. Imagine if these Muslims would have responded by griping and complaining about what is this? We keep sacrificing, we keep giving, does it never end? Where is it? Where, you know, etc., etc. There is no way that Allah would have used them as a tool and used their enemy as a tool to, in fact, give them victory. Before I... Oh, yeah, two things. Does you intend to discuss 10 to 20? Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did forget. <laughs> It's okay. Okay, I'll come back to it. Um, um, well, uh, no, okay, I'll, I'll leave uh, one point till the very end, and but deal with. The end of Surah Al-Hash, just so you see them in the, the, again, the, 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 it was clear that Muslims received in Surah Al-Hash 
it, it, it is not an exaggeration to say that this, you know, became an integral seed in the birth of endless Sufi orientations. It became an, an, a, a critical uh, a, a seed in the birth of the numerous discourses on akhlaq and also the whole discussions about and the relationship between as-safat and Allah's names and Allah's attributes and it just it, it, it exploded just an endless fountain of intellectual orientations and spiritual orientations but at the same time you find these traditions that say, the Prophet said, before you go to sleep, recite the end of Surah Al-Hash, so if you die that night, you die as a martyr. You find traditions that say, the end of Surah Al-Hash is cure to, for headaches. Recite the end of Surah Al-Hash if you have a headache because it will cure your headache. The end of Surah Al-Hash is a cure for every disease except poison. That's another hadith. Of course, it is not surprised that it is the muhaddisun, especially the the uh, um, um, the khusas, who took the challenge of the end of Surah Al-Hash is no less than what would cause mountains to crumble. Because it is the ultimate challenge in, 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 in sacrifice. And dumbed it down to a cure for headaches, a cure for ailments, a a a, um, a a you know a short backdoor to martyrdom, and of course, when you look into all these traditions, you find that they are as flimsy as they sound. But it is not an exaggeration to say that at the points in Islamic history when Islam is robust and healthy you find something like the end of Surah Al-Hashr at the heart of extensive discourses on ethics, morality, philosophy, intellect, um, various discourses on Kalam while at the points, the lowest points of Islamic history, you, end of, you find the end of Surah Al-Hash primarily talked about as a cure to headaches and a cure to ailments. And the thing that we would expect, silly religion or real religion, Allah's message being truly a transformative ethical message to humanity or you know, like an like the, the, the chemical ingredients of an alchemist. 
as to um, 10 to 20. So let's go back. Um, So, 10, first 11, I'm uh, sorry, 11 and 12. The most remarkable things about these verses is that they, they are written as if they are concurrent with the unfolding events. What they're saying, they're, they're talking about the hypocrites who promised Banu Nadir support. And uh, they told Banu Nadir, defy the prophet and we'll help you. But 10 and 11 then say, don't you see how they say to Ahl Kitab, to the people of the book, meaning Banu Nadir, that we will support you and that, in fact, if there is combat, we will fight side by side with you. But Allah attests that they are liars. And in fact, that they will not support them. Now, many traditions or many reports say that these verses were revealed before Banu Nadir in fact surrendered, predicting that the hypocrites will not in fact aid Banu Nadir. And if so, it would be the remarkable thing that all the, the, all the followers of Abdullah ibn Ubay needed to do to prove the Quran wrong is to simply join Banu Nadir. And then the, God's prediction that it won't happen would be wrong. And I don't know, I honestly couldn't satisfy myself whether in fact these ayat were revealed before the events predicting that the munafiqun will in fact not aid Banu Nadir or after the fact. I, I couldn't satisfy myself. However, I think the point remains because there is a very significant point here. First, Allah comments, notice how these people, instead of, be, instead of their consciousness being about rahba, fear of God, they in fact worry about 
you folks more than they worry about God. They're very pragmatic people. And in fact, Allah says about them is that they are cowardly and that they, their hearts are not in harmony with one another. So many commentators had then to deal with is Allah saying that the enemies of Muslims will always be like that? Are they always going to be cowardly? And are they always going to be in discord with one another? In other words, disunited despite the appearance of being united. And different different theologians gave different responses. But in my view, the answer is clearly no. Allah is not saying that. Allah is saying those enemies in this situation were like that. And why were they like that? Because Allah made them like that. So when you find that your enemies are not cowardly, and that your enemies, in fact, got their act together. And that, in fact, you are disunited and your enemies are united. What does that tell you? What you've learned about Surah Al-Hash just so far, what does that tell you? Look within. Then something is wrong about your Islam and about your relationship to the Quran. Take real-life examples. When you find the Israelis are able to defeat, I don't know how many armies, and that Muslims are afraid of fighting the Israelis, Muslim armies do everything to avoid a battle with the Israelis, regardless of how many times they, they bomb Muslims, they kill Muslims, they... They do whatever they want. When you find that non-Muslims are united in helping Ukraine and sacrificing your Ukraine, and Muslims can't get united even around the Aqsa Mosque, do we say the Quran lied? Or do we actually understand the message of Surah Al-Hash? If Allah didn't use your enemy as a tool against the enemy itself, remember what Allah says. Allah uses you as a tool and uses them as a tool. But Allah doesn't use them as a tool to defeat them. Then you don't deserve victory. Then your Islam is flawed. That is why I, you know, I will go to my grave, I think on my deathbed, if Allah gives me the last breath, I, I, will, I will repeat this mantra. 
Muslims deserve the teachers they get. Because it it is mind-boggling. How could we be in the mess we are in, demonstrated every single day, and still we adore the same type of doctrinal teaching that has brought us to this mess. How could we relish ignorance of the Quran to the extent that we do relish it? How can we celebrate those who make Islam stupid religion and then blame Islam when for our own intellectual failures. Anyone that, look, look at the audience of this tafsir. Small, so minute. In the realm of things, so marginal that it is not even on the map. Look, so some rather obvious points, but it is a necessary transition. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, then look, look at their defeatism. That defeatism is itself a gift from Allah, because it could have gone very differently. And understand that if you are truly good, then the nature of evil is double-crossing. It is the, the same message repeated in the Quran in many different forms, in different contexts, that Al-Batil Zahiq Wal-Haq Zahir Truth is victorious if it is truth. So whenever you look onto your, into, inside yourself as Muslims and find that you are indeed not victorious then there is a flaw in the Haq that you represent. And Surat al-Hashr tells you forgetting God is forgetting yourself. Forgetting yourself will not get you the results that you saw with Ben al-Nadir. The whole psychological dynamic that allowed dynamics that allowed Muslims to prevail. But it is all premised on sacrifice, the attitude of sacrifice, and the attitude of overcoming individual selfishness for the public good. And that in that is the act of tasbih Allah 
العظيم is the act of supplicating God through the conscious choice of your intellects in the same way that creation supplicates through the unconscious choice or the unconscious non-choice of nature. And that's it. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. Oh, there's one last minor thing about historical methodology, just to... The, you notice in Surah Al-Hash, this ayah, um, وما أتاكم الرسول فخذوه وما نهاكم عنه فانتهوا واتقوا الله إن الله شديد العقاب seven right whatever the prophet orders you to do you should do whatever the prophet forbids you to do you should not do this of course this area became a participant in a lot of debates about the role of hadith um, and so on and so forth, which is a larger topic. But you find this example in um, that Ibn Mas'ud reports that the Prophet ﷺ condemned al-washimat wal-mutanassimat al-mutanammisat wal-mutafallijat these are women who engaged in practices, by the way, that continue to survive till today of tattooing their faces. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, like Sudanese women, uh, some Sudanese women, where they, they, uh, they, they, it's not color tattoo, but they actually cut the face or puncture the face so that it has, um, it's tattooing by, by body piercing. But it's right on the face. So you find, for instance, um, marks on the cheek in a certain design, um, it's, uh, uh, creating gaps, uh, a gap in the between the frontiers was considered a sign of beauty. So uh, there were tribes that would forcibly part the teeth to create a gap uh, as a sign of beauty. And so Ibn Mas'ud is saying that the Prophet ﷺ condemned these practices because they are because they are changing Allah's creation. What you find in the Islamic tradition and the, 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 and the part that interests me the most is that a report, for instance, about a woman from Banu Asad, a well-known tribe in Arabia, called Umm Yaqub, that goes and confronts Ibn Mas'ud and says, I've heard that you are teaching 
um, that the prophet condemned this and this and you know these practices. And I've read the Quran and I've seen no such condemnation. And Ibn, the, 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 in the narrative, Ibn Mas'ud then recites this verse that whatever God, whatever the Prophet commands, and it says, well, it is in the Quran through this verse. His, what he's saying is that, well, since this said to obey the Prophet, and the Prophet taught this, so that's the way, in, the way, that's the way it's in the Quran. But what is fascinating, and the thing that we don't often pause at, is these numerous reports of, which is very unusual in in if in the um, very. The, uh, numerous reports of women taking the active role of making their objections or their positions known. You know, some reports don't tell us what happened to Umm Yaqub, whether she agreed or not. Other reports tell us that Umm Yaqub was herself a practitioner of mutafallija that she had there teeth parted and she didn't like the answer that Ibn Mas'ud gave. But the, the agency that women gained in voicing, in articulating or presenting their own voice is, is historically fascinating. And something that often, you know, often people will, will focus on a report like this on whether, in fact, the prophet said or didn't say this tradition and ignore the fact that you have a woman that plays a very active agency in questioning someone like Ibn Mas'ud, which is, if you take the what that tells us about our modern age, our modern moment, has numerous implications. Um, anyway, yeah, okay. So that's it. Alhamdulillah. The Surah Al Hush. No time for Q and A tonight. Okay. Well, Alhamdulillah, I want to exercise my agency, and I want to. Um, sound my I think you were rushing alarm because I think you were rushing and there were certain things that um, I feel like you know like verse 15 and 16 and I think it was a double tech because obviously you've never just skipped 10 verses I mean I think there was obviously something to that and then the technology failure and all of that so it's pretty late now it's almost 1030 so what I would propose is that we continue to the next section or oh, in, in yeah. a, but please if you could 15, just give 16. us if you could i mean if you want to talk about 15 and 16 now that would be fine or um we could save it for next time and then we can just again give you an opportunity to go back on the things that you know i just i don't know my rush meter it's just like part of me viscerally i'm like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
we can do it next time. It's yeah. late, uh, and then maybe we can um, we can start like the next sura and then combine the Q and A for both. So that that's my my proposal. Uh, so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm getting thumbs up from the interactive group. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. I, I will. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Because 15 and 16 probably deserve a little bit extra. Yeah, okay. I, yeah, okay. Unless, I did rush a bit. Unless you want to do a fast pass of 15, 16. No, because I did skip other stuff. So I knew it. I knew it. I felt it. I'm sure everyone now has been trained to feel it. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> All right. Alhamdulillah. So that's the plan. Inshallah, we will um, continue next week on Surah Al Hash. Um, and then maybe. I mean, but it'd be but good it's to not start a lot. Kind of, I mean, it's just like. So maybe like we can start 10 another, minutes, so we'll start, start another story yeah. too, and then we can do a combined Q&A, inshallah. Okay, very good. Well, thank you, everyone. This is a really, actually, it was incredible. And um, I mean, I know I have, I have some questions, um, but so cliffhanger to be continued. Um, everyone have a wonderful week, and inshallah, we will see you, see you next week. Okay. Assalamu alaikum. Good night.